1: Hello and
0: welcome to the Media Podcast, I'm Ollie Mann. On the show this week, it's a Mergers and Acquisitions special as Amazon buys MGM and Discovery merges with Warner Media. What does it all mean for the battle of the streaming giants? Also on the programme, the fallout continues from the Diana Panorama scandal as Fleet Street and the government push for more power over the broadcaster. All that plus we spot the trends at the recent Audio Awards and the US TV upfronts. ponder Facebook's latest news deals and in the Media Quiz we go the full Linda Bellingham. That's all coming up in this edition of The Media Podcast. And back on the show today, our man with a fresh tray full of delicious hot takes, editor of Newsweek International, Alex Hudson. Hello, Alex. (laughs) Hello. Have you yet been in your office and actually met the people who report to you?
2: I have been in my office once to pick up an office chair, but I only met the, <laughs> the head of HR who is a lovely, lovely person, Lewis is great. But no, I have, I have yet to meet any of my colleagues now 14 months in, in person. So Newsweek didn't offer you the opportunity to uh, subsidise an office chair at home. You had to go and steal the one from the building that they were paying for. They would have sent it to me, though I think getting a cab sent to me with a with a chair in it is a, a you know a post-apocalyptic view of where we might be heading, but ha- happily we are not there yet. Um, are you going to continue to be spending a proportion of your work week working from home, do you think, when things potentially go back to normal? I think, luckily with Newsweek, it was already the case beforehand. Um, so I think that will continue, and also... I am so bored of these four walls. I'm so, we, I live with my partner in a one bedroom flat. So we have two rooms to go in. So she is now relegated to the bedroom. Mm-hmm. And as I get this room to record this podcast, so you know, more well, rooms, any rooms, any office space will be wonderful. And we are highly looking forward to getting back to at least some some semblance of a an office well
0: i can see from the webcam you do have some lovely plants so that's some small consolation (laughs) uh also joining us today is chief content officer of content company something else mr steve ackerman hello steve
3: hello ollie
0: uh as we record it was the arias last night the radio academy awards were you in the room or were you downing a bottle of vodka in your pajamas
3: no i wasn't in the room i wasn't downing a bottle of vodka either uh so no and no to those Couple two of glasses <laughs> uh no no i mean we did we did win one which we were very pleased about so that was, so that was great yeah. what was it tell us uh that was best specialist show with jam supernova oh yeah
0: what did you think of the I mean, we've, i've sort of asked a version of this question about 100 times over the show over the last year obviously but these awards are becoming less remote and more hybrid now aren't they so it's a legitimate evolution of the question what did you think of the award ceremony now that it was kind of half in person half on the computer
3: I'm very sympathetic to, uh, no, I'm, I'm genuinely sim- sim- sympathetic to the fact that it, it's a real challenge, I think, to try and do something that can feel like a bit of an award ceremony, but obviously works remotely. And in a sense, I think they, they sort of did did the best they possibly could, you know, as an auditorium with proper presenters and, 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 and a sense of live about it. Um, it's probably not that much longer that we're going to, still have these sort of hybrid moments. You know, hopefully by this time next year we'll be packing out halls again, though I'm sure showing a remote version as well for people to watch, which is obviously going to be a good addition.
0: Yeah, that could actually be a welcome evolution, couldn't it? What did you make of Magic winning Station of the Year? I don't think I've ever seen... I don't think I've ever seen a pure music station win Station of the Year before, never mind BBC or commercial.
3: I'm not sure I can get that emotional about it either way, to be honest. Um I mean, you know, Magic's a nice station, but nice is probably the right word. <laughs> well, it
0: shows, doesn't it, that I guess... Because I thought that all the winners of the Radio Academy Awards this year were going to be news winners because of the coronavirus being such a huge story. But it shows that, I suppose, for a lot of people, and the judges must have felt this way, the flip side of a horrendous news story unfolding around you is a lot of people just want to escape the hell away from that.
3: Well, completely. I mean, come on, we've all had that experience where, and especially when you think back over the past 15 months, where you just feel, I cannot watch any more news because it's just dragging me down and you think about what magic offers it is the complete opposite it's 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 feel good middle of the road music that is non-offensive and and just does you know they do exactly what they say they're going to do
0: i mean there's no time of the day that i don't want to hear dancing on the ceiling by lionel richie Uh, okay let's kick off our mergers and acquisitions special as i promised in the intro with news that amazon has bought movie studio mgm for a reported 8.45 billion dollars uh, the deal means that Amazon gets access to the James Bond catalog, which Netflix, well, Netflix wanted to buy just the upcoming movie for a billion dollars just by itself. So there was obviously a competition there. And this news comes after we learned that Discovery are to merge with AT and T to create another new streaming giant, which will take on Netflix, Disney Plus, and um, Amazon Prime. Uh, so Steve, MGM first. Let's talk about them. They were in trouble actually. So in a way, is it, I mean, should we be asking why Amazon was willing to pay so much?
3: Well they were in trouble and they and obviously they it'd been very publicly advertised they were up for sale but obviously they do have a very valuable inventory I mean you only have to look at ITV2 schedules to know what you know what are they going to do if James Bond gets stripped away from them um, you know it's, it's probably has to be I guess along with what else Star Wars and Harry Potter one of the most valuable film franchises in the world and and it keeps on giving obviously so so in that sense there is a genuine value there and 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 you can see for Amazon how it makes complete sense
0: Alex it's not just because people might think well how many times can I watch James Bond but actually, I suppose owning the IP is different, isn't it? Because you can make new versions of it. That's what Amazon have proven with Lord of the Rings coming up. You know, they're now going to own Rocky, Robocop, Wizard of Oz. You could make TV spin-offs of all those things. I
2: think that's one part, of it. I still think you're perhaps there's an underestimation of just how many times people watch James Bond <laughs> and how many, like how many, and like if you look at friends, what well, the, the friends exclusive is out the, the friends reunion is out today. Like that show along with like the office is still watched time and time and time and time and time, and time again by people. And James Bond audiences aren't going to just watch those films once. And so I, I think it's, it's a core part, you know, like um, Red Hot Chili Pepper selling their back catalog because mm. people are still listening to it and they're still licensing it they're, that, that, that catalogue, particularly for a sort of audience which are incredibly likely to subscribe to a to a digital service, if James Bond is on there, they, I think that's one part of it. And I agree with you, right? The the IP is amazing about what you can do with. James Bond although you know are you going to make it a beautiful wonderful new innovative thing or are you going to have 70 the 75th Star Wars film in the last 30 seconds as as is happening at the moment so it's it's how do Amazon find that balance how do you still make a James Bond release an event even event that's now been delayed what 12 months or so and how do you how do you keep particular how the new James Bond is picked even more scrutiny will be on Amazon and what they do next, and, and but that back catalogue is worth the money they're paying for it regardless of the IP. On the other hand,
0: Steve, if you went to talented creatives and said, we've got $8 billion to play with, we were thinking about buying MGM, but what we'd like to do instead is come up with 50 great new brands we could exploit for the next 100 years. Couldn't they achieve that anyway without owning Robocop?
3: Yeah, but it's a risk, isn't it? That's the point that you you know you've got something surefire here, and you know when you look at things like the Marvel universe or how Disney's expanded the Star Wars universe, you could easily see how potentially with that James Bond universe or some of those other franchises as well, you can expand those out quite easily. You've got backstories to tell on baddies. You've got different characters that pop up. You know movie after movie who you can spin off in different ways it's the fact that you're buying something that's fully established and come on it just gets back to the same thing I mean especially with Amazon who are such a data-driven business and and and, you know smart smart people then they're not going to buy this unless they've crunched the numbers and they feel that it absolutely justifies the price and
0: actually does it make Netflix look a bit weaker I mean it's obviously the point isn't it they're all trying to compete with the big beast Alex and Netflix doesn't have ip with that kind of you know 100 year heritage does it whereas actually disney does because as you alluded to they have star wars and fox um discovery now have warner and hbo which we'll talk about in a minute netflix don't
2: and that's how netflix pivoted what 10 years ago maybe with house of cards was that 10 years ago wow if that is true that that makes you feel incredibly old (laughs) um but so netflix bought. up all of the rights to all of those films and all of the BBC back catalogue really early on, and that's how they built their audience. But now they have, I think it's 200 million subscribers going on for 200 million subscribers. It's what can Netflix do differently? What Netflix was always the new upstart in this. And so its brand is in creating, continuing like its new, it's new formats. It's, it's starting to get delve into game shows and, and, and weird reality shows, and, and it's, it's in Netflix doing something original and new. In a way where you were saying, like, would would Netflix spend the eight point five billion dollars on an existing format or a new format? I think Netflix is finding that in breaking through in in those brilliant new things that then end up at the Oscars or or elsewhere is how Netflix makes it seems sort of like a like an authority on new content rather than just buying in authority from other companies. And let's talk about that other deal, the forty three billion dollar deal
0: to merge Warner Media with discovery steve i mean to me reading between the lines this sort of seems largely to be at&t acknowledging they don't quite know what to do with the tv and movie studio they had warner hbo they kind of ballsed it up and pissed off christopher nolan by saying that all the films were going to come out online at the same time as the cinemas and they've just said like we've got an established player here we've got david zaslav who runs discovery he can run the movie studios if we team up with them i mean that sort of seems to be what's behind it largely
3: uh, Well, no, no, no. I think I think there's another layer, which is come on, almost almost a week doesn't go by on this podcast when you are talking about the SVOD battle and the streaming wars battle and how many subscriptions can any one person pay for and you know we think it's going to be four or five or is it going to be six and that's really what's at the root of this i mean but discovery you know, plus think,
0: aren't a big player in that i mean they've had 15 million subscribers since january not bad but i mean when you look at Netflix, netflix's 208 million is is it worth getting involved with discovery really
3: they're not a big player but when you when you team the two companies together and build up a catalogue there then obviously it you know you have a very different different picture. Um, You know, I'm sure we're going to carry on seeing more of this because ultimately, um, you can see that there's a consolidation path going on. And, um, you know, cleverer people than me, I I think the stat I keep reading is 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 the average, they expect the average subscriber, the average user to subscribe to about four services. I think that's about right, isn't it? Alex will probably know the answer to that. But um, um, so we're so we're not, we're not necessarily quite at Um, saturation point yet you know we're sort of getting there and there's obviously big competition you've got also Peacock and loads of other services that haven't actually launched in the UK yet um, that that are also battling in this space so really these are the sort of early um, you know gunshots being fired in a battle that's going to take place over the next what couple of years probably.
0: Yeah I mean Alex as Steve said we do talk about this every episode but it does kind of evolve every episode doesn't it and I suppose if you zoom out enough the long picture is you know, for a long time, people who wanted premium content had to get Sky, basically, and spend £60, £70 a month. Then there was this whole period of cord cutting. And now we're going back to a scenario where you're not paying one company anymore, but you are still paying 60 or £70 a month if you want to see
2: everything. And so Sky is a good example, right? So all of the TV companies, all of these big corporations want want their monopoly back. So if you look at, like, Sky just owns, if you're paying for a TV service in the 90s, you are paying for Sky. If you're looking for like the US uh, cable network, same thing. And Netflix for a long time was the only company that you gave money to online to watch TV shows or movies or whatever. So people are making, what, what was the ATT uh, $108 billion? They're making $108 billion bets on the fact that they can get their monopolistic powers back even though the market is so mature now and every, and, and Disney is in it and there, is, there are so many operators in it that it can't really be a monopoly monopoly but they're still looking for that and so I, I still don't think people are going to pay for four I think I think there will be that point where people start to cut down again because there will be that one brand that they tie themselves to or two brands that they'll tie themselves to people don't have enough time to watch all the tv if they're watching youtube if they're checking social media if they're actually having a life when real life is allowed again and so it's it's how do people vie for that one or two subscriptions rather than the three or four that they might be having at the moment
1: Plushcare.com/weightloss. Do you work in the audio industry, or are you may be thinking
0: about getting your business into podcasts? Well, lucky for you, there is a brand new international conference coming to a laptop near you. Cue the punchy sales music. Podcast Day 24 is on the 7th of June and features over 100 inspiring speakers from around the world. It's 24 hours of amazing insight on the podcast industry coming live from Sydney, London and the United States and all available on demand. Featuring the making of the hit music documentary Dolly Parton's America, Fern Cotton on building a happy place from a podcast to a live festival the UK's biggest true crime show, red-handed, on making thousands per month from Patreon, plus speakers from ABC, BBC, CBC, NPR and other three-letter acronyms. That's Podcast Day 24, Monday the 7th of June, and available on demand. For tickets, head to podcastday24.com now. Okay, uh, we can avoid it no longer. Let's do Diana Gate. Uh, The BBC has been doing its usual self-flagellation this week following the Dyson report into Martin Bashir's interview with Princess Diana. Uh, The government have responded too as well. Of course, Home Secretary Priti Patel said the licence fee midpoint review next year would see changes to the broadcaster from on high. Oliver Dowden laid into the BBC's, quote, groupthink, uh, although John Whittingdale was a little more cautious in his criticism Steve what did you make of, of the way the BBC dealt with this this week I suppose I mean the current director general Tim Davey in particular how do you think they've handled the fallout from this
3: Actually, I think Tim Davey, uh handled it pretty well um I think he was he seemed to me to be pretty on the front foot in a you know very difficult situation on um, the front foot
0: after four days of not saying anything
3: well no 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 I think I think he I, you know I think once that report came out he was on the front foot and that's that is the time to say to say something, you know, I mean, you know, I feel very sorry for Tim Davey because obviously this is not of his making. It's not like some of the recent scandals were had with the BBC where it's sort of on his watch. It's not even on his well, it is on his predecessor's watch, but you know, what I mean, not not as DG, um, uh, you know, it's something from a long, long time ago. Um, however, I mean, obviously it's it it it's a disastrous story for the bbc because it just gets to the principles of ethics and and journalism and 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 the bbc is such a you know is built on on that element of trust the other thing I'd say about it is the government's reaction was wholly predictable. I mean, you 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 don't need to be any sort of media expert with this government to know that if there's a chance really to grab the BBC by the neck, they they will do it, and they and they've taken their chance. Unfortunately, the BBC gave them that opportunity, and you know, to, to start saying something that happened 25 years ago means there needs to be complete upheaval now. I mean, clearly that's that's a big leap of faith, you know. What organisation could you look at in any sphere of business or anything else uh, that is run now the same way as it was 25 years ago or hasn't changed over 25 years? I mean, you know, it's a pretty difficult ask. So, so you know, Oliver Dadden and Priti Patel, it was sort of 10 out of 10 for predictable response.
0: <laughs> Except, Alex, there is this inconvenient detail that they did rehire, rehire Martin Bashir in 2016 for a job that I don't think existed before, did it? Religious editor? I don't think they've replaced him since he resigned. And, you know, that was a decision that Tony Hall was part of, James Harding was part of. So it's not as simple as just saying, well, it happened 25 years ago. A curious person might have been aware that there was an issue around
2: Bashir then. That one's tricky, right? So that so I, I agree with Steve about the whole, like, it's 25 years ago, things have changed. But how he got rehired, um, which critics are saying there wasn't so... Uh, Unnamed sources in reporting have said that he just got hired without an interview. There wasn't a rigorous process. The BBC says that there was a rigorous process and that all due process was followed. It's too recent for that to be forgotten history. And so the BBC has said that it's going to review its editorial practices and investigate. But what that actually means in practice is, is just due diligence. If you're hiring people, your job is to look through every social media post they've ever made, every allegation that's ever been made, and show that you have absolute confidence in the people that you're hiring. So I didn't know until this all came out that Bashir was launched by this day in an interview like he was a sort of beat reporter beforehand or that like he wasn't it wasn't a big name and this this was his moment right this is this is and so the idea that he is this naive person who didn't understand the rules is plausible, but the idea that he hasn't gained so much from that interview and 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 then why i think the question is what did the BBC want from getting him back in? And that's, that's, that's the question that the the, the press has asked. Okay, what do do they have? Does do they want to keep his mouth shut? Do they want what what is the reason for him back? Is it because he is the best religious editor that the BBC could have employed at that point? Or is there something else going on?
3: Yeah, I, actually, the, 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 the point about what he got out of it originally is a good, I mean, I'm, I, sadly, I am old enough to remember the original interview, I remember watching it, and, and maybe what, what actually hasn't necessarily been reported on now, because again, it's a sort of a tainted story, but he then landed a massive interview with Michael Jackson on the back of it, which was also, you know. Well, I mean, a, in
0: Michael Jackson circles, you know, this is big news on the internet.
3: Well, it was. I mean, at the time, that was massive because he was the he was the absolute global superstar, and never gave interviews. But so the, it but really the, was.
0: But the, the super fans are saying we need a review on how he duped Michael well, Jackson as well. well the argument yeah. for both interviews is the same, though, isn't it? Which is whatever the methods, not that the the means justify the ends, but whatever the methods, they both uncovered an essential truth. Michael Jackson was preying on children. Princess Diana was vulnerable in a marriage with three people in it. I mean, those are things that the public now know.
3: Yeah, but at the end of the day, journalism. Has to be built on ethics doesn't it um and especially coming out of the out of the bbc the other thing i wasn't aware of until the story really came out and maybe this is what you're alluding to alex was that um he then went on he obviously worked for a number of us broadcasters but there were a number of uh dubious reasons why some of those jobs came to an end as as well i don't actually know the details on those i just know that there's a, a suggestion of something uh, you know, something happened in some of those jobs, which, you know, clearly, again, I think plays to Alex's point about about the rehiring and kind of, you know, was enough due diligence done there.
0: And actually, for all of the scepticism that it might cause people to feel about British journalism, it's worth bearing in mind that this story only came to light because of British journalism. <laughs> it's because of the Mail
2: on Sunday and the Sunday Times and the Times and Channel 4 Dispatches and, and others over the years. So Prince Harry's point that such practices are still widespread today, and he said that it's bigger than one outlet, one network, or one publication, I, th- I think you, would well, Prince Harry and and Meghan have have seen all manner of issues with the press. It, it's it's journalism that is outing these things. I think you're right, and it, it's it's not journalism is a brilliantly noble profession that, for the pr- precise reason that we have to be held to a hi- higher account every time something does go wrong, it makes national news and everyone jumps in the back of it and it becomes a national talking point. And so, as we all know, right, if if one thing appears in the media and it and it gets traction, then other headlines appear and people think that it's widespread even though it's happened three or four times in the existence of humanity. Um, it, we have to believe in journalism. Journalism is is more transparent and more ethical than it ever has been, which I know I've said on this every time and I will no doubt get criticised for saying so. But it, it's, not, it's not a signifier of where journalism is now. I think it could be argued that it was a signifier of where journalism was 25 years ago. And I, I think the amount of journalists like Bashir who were doing similar things just hid it better or, or covered up their trial better.
3: Well, well, not uh, necessarily. When you look at things like phone hacking, I mean, I mean, I mean, that was one other side element of the story this week. The reaction of papers like The Sun and The and the Mail, who obviously love the fact that, you know, the BBC have been uh, exposed to it to a degree uh, and actually cited in their editorials phone hacking and, and Leveson and some of those issues. Because you know they feel that that the, the sort of BBC Guardian camp were sort of jumping on the ethics of the tabloids and the Mail. But you you look at the reaction there, and again, you know, we're talking about a, a a very very significant story here in terms of Diana, and obviously the most famous interview probably there's there's been in the past fifty years. Um, but the flip side of that is I don't think the Sun or the Mail are in any uh, decent place to be lecturing anyone else about ethics.
0: Incidentally, on the business about whether the interview should ever be played again in full, didn't you find that just a really bizarre diversion? I mean, when since when have ever? I mean, even on you know BBC Parliament, when have they ever shown a panorama in full from nineteen ninety seven? That wouldn't happen. But the idea that you wouldn't show clips from what, as you suggest, is you know pretty much the most important interview of our lifetimes <laughs> in regard to the British establishment—that's just bizarre.
3: No, no, I don't think you can. Once, once it's been. Once there's an allegation of, of it was uh, obtained under dubious circumstances, uh, you know, whatever it the argument we all around saw that. It.
0: We're talking about it now. You can't talk about it unless you've got the context of seeing clips of it. I mean, it's like saying, oh, you can't ever read an extract from Mein Kampf. You know, I mean, surely to talk about it, you need to see it. Well,
3: no, I, I no, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I mean, that's like saying you can't have a phone hacking case without listening to the to the phone calls that were recorded. I mean, I I don't think that's. I don't think that's true.
0: What about this sort of sweet spot as well for the BBC, or whatever the opposite of a sweet spot is, a bitter spot, in regard to the royal family? Because, you know, having hosted this show for the last seven years, whatever it is, it's amazing how frequent, when there's a proper scandal that goes ballistic at the BBC, it's always to do with the royals, whether it's the Leibovitz photo shoot and the editing of the Queen's reaction, or Danny Baker's supposedly racist tweet. When it affects the royal family, that's when it's like everyone chimes in and yet the conclusion is often kind of, well, now we can't trust the BBC anymore. Trust has been eroded. But we're not royals. Like, Why do people feel that on that particular issue? Like, Why don't people feel that trust has been eroded when someone who lives in your road has been conned into taking part in a soap?
2: you know? And the, the BBC's job is on the big story. So like election night, the reason that the BBC just has... 10x the the audience of itv or other outlets is because they are trusted in those environments and and so when it comes like um after 9 11 you switch on the bbc you didn't switch on another network and the royal family in in there is no big event around the royal family necessarily but just having any news around the royal family seems a big event and something the bbc should excel in so the stakes are much higher for getting it wrong the stakes are much more scrutinized because the the royalists of the britain are the the coreist of the core BBC audience. And it, it, it all chimes with the idea that the BBC has to be right all the time. And um, But when it's about royalty or when it's about stuff that the core BBC audience and and the tabloids care about most, they are scrutinised more, even more closely than usual. In
0: another sign that the BBC is on the back foot this week, BBC Studios is resetting its search for a CEO after a 10-month process, according to Deadline. Why do you think BBC Studios, the production arm of the BBC, Steve, can't find a head? They have a budget of $2 billion to spend on content. And, you know, they are one of the world's best makers of content. Why can't they find someone who wants to be the boss?
3: Well, funnily enough, in a strange way, I think this, this sort of has a slight ripple around the previous story, which is, as it's a public service broadcaster, there is scrutiny over salaries. And, you know, there is definitely an issue about being able to afford top talent but the other thing is kind of bearing in mind the story we've just been discussing you know that if you come to the BBC there is the risk of just a a whole new level of scrutiny to to what you do or the shows you make or the people who work within your organization that you don't get in any other media organization globally and um, especially bearing in mind the competitive marketplace there is now again going back to the stories we've discussed earlier around um, you know mergers and acquisitions and you know there is a there is a very competitive market for top talent and therefore frankly I'm sure a lot of people are looking at it going well it doesn't pay me as much as I can get elsewhere and I'd get a whole lot more grief what do I, why do I want it?
0: Yeah so Endemol Shine Group CEO Sophie Turner-Lang has turned down the job apparently All3Media's CEO Jane Turton uh, the YouTube EMEA boss Cecile Frocotaz as well who's just signed up to become the next chief executive of Sky Studios I mean it's kind of We'll get to the point where the person who gets the job will only get the job when an article in The Guardian heralds the kind of 10 people who've turned it down on the way. That's not good luck either, is it?
3: I was very intrigued, actually, with a line that I saw around the story which said that the new uh, BBC chairman, whose name evades me, but is an ex-Goldman Sachs banker, and I think a buddy of Rishi Sunak, wasn't he originally, is looking for people outside of media mm. to come in and run it. And, th- and that really sort of made me stand back because to think that Someone who has no experience of running a studio or program making or, or TV in Would any all. Would head up the program all, making
0: bit. I mean, this
3: isn't. I mean, it does seem extraordinary. It's not like other businesses where you, you know, it's not like, you know, if you run John Lewis, you, you, you know, you can possibly go into other areas of retail because you understand how a shop works. I mean, you know, I think uh, the idea that you could come in from a different sector. Does seem quite amazing though maybe I'm just naive and 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 sort of don't quite understand the bigger picture there.
2: The the BBC is used to holding all the cards with who they hired and and the BBC was always the dream job and I think still in news there are a few places better to work of course Newsweek is one of them but like there are a few places better to work in in news than the BBC and when it comes to program making 15-20 years ago the BBC was the place right and and whereas now like Steve's point you have Amazon you have Netflix you have you have Disney you have these places where it is more exciting and and you have more freedom and you're less scrutinized and you get a lot more money. So, I I, and like to your list, there are so many, there are people who believe like um, Gina Balan who's FX president, like Paul Lee, ABC, BBC executive. Like the the list is so long of people who have been approached and said no, that you you kind of think they need to rethink how that role works and and the scrutiny that it, it falls under if they want to attract the right sort of people.
0: Okay, let's change topic. And uh, GB News has announced its launch lineup. Uh, what do you make of it, Steve?
3: Uh, I'm sort of partly intrigued, though. Though I, I suppose the thing that stood out for me was the. And remind me what the tagline they've announced is, Ollie. But it was something like what free, fair, and impartial, or something along those lines. And it really resonated for me. Isn't with- it? Yes, exactly. It yeah. really resonated with Fox. And yet yeah, I know they're saying, no, we're absolutely going to be impartial and operating to Ofcom guidelines, which they will be. And, you know, the guidelines are obviously stricter in the UK than they are in the US. But that was the thing that stood out for me, along with I think they've got a show called something like Woke Hour or something or, or you know. Andrew
0: Neil's programme is going to have a Woke Watch as part of it. Woke Watch,
3: yeah. right, yeah. Which, which, which probably tells you all you need to know about where the, where the tone is here. Um, but there's a, I suppose there's a tone,
0: isn't there? I mean, Eddie Mayer has that tone. That doesn't mean that the whole program is biased in any particular way. It's a raised eyebrow, isn't it?
3: In a funny way, the model is LBC, right? In the UK, I think you know. And what LBC, uh, for those who don't know, have have done really cleverly is, you know, it's a twenty-four hour, you know, news channel. It's a commercial radio, I guess, equivalent of sort of Five Live. But they've done that. What they've done very cleverly is pepper that with people who very clearly have attitude on different sides of the spectrum and, and come from very clear positions, either right, right or left. And that's allowed them to have very opinionated hosts and to really generate some great content and to obviously uh, generate news making interviews all that sort of all that sort of stuff and from what i understand about gb news i think they're going to be trying to do a similar thing which is they will be trying to cover the news um you know there'll be times in their schedule where they are just covering the news as any other news outlet would but where there's going to be some shows that have very very clear uh, opinionated um, presenters, and I suppose this really gets to the heart of of the times we 're living in, which is you know the, there is a culture war going on in that sense you know i, I, I yeah I, I, I did find
0: it quite interesting i don 't know if you 've seen the YouTube videos launching the station, Alex, but um in all the interviews leading up to the launch, when Andrew neil has been asked about brexit, leave versus remain, he sort of said well that 's decided it was ages ago. What difference does it make? Of course we 've got to employ people that voted for Leave and people who voted for Remain, and we're not even thinking about that. And yet in their own promotional videos, which are only five minutes long, they they have a little tip of the hat to the Brexit referendum and the divide that the country was in. All the presenters say something about, you know, we are the station for people that had different views all over the country who weren't listened to. You know, this was a
2: seismic event, made me think twice about delivering news. They're referring to it. I think that's, it's code for not London centric. And so if you look, if you look at their hiring spree, um which is next level like hey, we're announcing another person we're announcing another person which is is brilliant for the, the sort of a struggling journalism industry but if you look at where they're, they're hiring sort of a number of different people across each different county if you look they've got a wales report they've got like an, like they've really spent the time and money finding those people who know those local beats and who are known by that local community because that's where they think they're going to get the subscribers from or the watchers from they're not going to you know they as much as they might like to think that shoreditch people are going to uh, hate watch them or whatever that, that's not going to happen so how can they grow out outside the usual conversations you know and, and so all of this you know woke watch and media watch and anna neil's point around it being counter cultural you know even though it's owned by part and by discovery and a, and a company who owns a significant portion of itv it it's all about connecting to those people who feel disconnected and, and that is clever political rhetoric, you know, it's, it's how Brexit won. We should say what the schedule is, actually. So
0: Andrew Neil, we knew, was going to have a primetime news programme every night. So is Michelle Dubry each weeknight. Dan Wooten as well, five nights a week. Alistair Stewart, I think five nights a week, but uh, the show is called Alistair Stewart and Friends. So I don't know how long that programme is or exactly what the format is. And the presenters they've announced for breakfast are Nana Akua, Kirsty Gallagher, Rebecca Hudson, Inaya Falara Iman, Darren McCaffrey and Rosie Wright. One thing I have seen as a sort of convincing argument, possibly, for it on business terms, Steve, is that because the price of advertising has come down, and as Alex says, they're trying to appeal to parts of the country that don't necessarily watch other news channels at the moment, maybe they could attract advertisers who wouldn't normally see themselves as TV advertisers.
3: Yeah, possibly. I mean, I, I, I think on an advertising front, I think it's going to be tough. Um, you know, we're not the US. We don't have that scale um and as you know sky news has run as a lost leader for many many years even though it's a fantastic channel and does a does a great job and and in many other ways has done a great job for sky but it's not it's not something that's that that's a money maker for sky clearly this is a this is a cheaper operation um but it's difficult i think to see i mean you know if the cost of advertising has come down um that doesn't play to a business that's trying to make decent profits.
0: What about the technology as well? I'm curious about that. They claim to be the first cloud-based newsroom. I wonder if, I mean, just when you launch anything, Alex, the fact that they're launching in a pandemic does mean maybe they can come up with slightly more agile solutions and new technology that you wouldn't if you started it five, ten years ago.
2: I mean, you are launching a TV channel in 2021. So, I mean, as innovative as one can be. So, Becca Hudson, who you mentioned, uh, no relation, and it's spelt differently, but she's an old colleague and friend, is, is running all the digital side and so i'm interested to see what she she comes out with as far as the digital element of this but as far as it, it comes with the advantages to your point that that we are not we are it allows them to be innovative in in what what they're doing but i feel like sky has already innovated around that because of the pandemic and the bbc has already had to innovate that because they couldn't have people in studios so it's what do they do differently and i'm looking at all the digital side of things and i can't see anything yet and I'm like, Becca is very, very good at what she does. So I'm excited to see see what, what happens. But it, it feels like it's sort of an analog product in, a, in, a, in, in 2021 is, is a surprise, both for revenue and for business. It's interesting. I mean, if you were brought in actually
0: as digital editor of GB News, unlikely Alex, perhaps, what would you be telling them to do, you know, across digital spectrum that, that they're not? Because it is all very focused, isn't it, on a kind of old fashioned TV watch, it appears.
2: Uh, that depends on their interview structures, It depends on their long-form videos. So it's, it's, to LBC's point, it's how you turn those viral clips of LBC that go around every few days. How do you do that for GB News every hour of the day? And how do you make sure that they're over three minutes so that Facebook can put an ad in front of them?
0: Let's cover some more media news in brief. And we alluded to it earlier, the Arias, radio's biggest night of the year, took place on Wednesday evening, a hybrid affair with some attending in person, most people at home, um, did you notice any trends, Steve at the arias
3: yes, the b b c won lots of awards again
0: and Global didn't because they didn't enter as we've discussed before as well. Well, Global
3: didn't cause they yeah but yeah, but come on, that's not a news story anymore. Global haven't entered for years and years and years now, so um but yeah, you know look i mean the b b c just just completely dominated it, which is interesting because to be fair to the arias the way uh, the judging works is um, is, uh, is is that uh, you know a set number of nominations are set aside for non-BBC productions and then percent set 50%, nominations. It? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's fifty-fifty. So there is every attempt to ensure that there can be some sort of even playing field, bearing in mind the the size of resource and 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 the fact there's obviously no commercial pressures that that the BBC has. So I think in that sense, especially in a, maybe in a pandemic year, I mean I suppose in one way in one way it's not surprising. Uh, you know lots of sort of news wins and but actually uh radio one you know did did really really well most of its shows sort of picked up awards it picked up awards for its imaging um so that so that's probably a good sign in terms of a station that looks to be getting on track but yeah the headline is basically look at most categories the winner is the bbc
0: and sometimes bbc local though i mean that is you know perhaps not obvious from the headline isn't it you had local radio stations winning which is kind of heartening you know that their budgets are so small
2: bbc radio sheffield won, and that and i like particularly it's almost a thumb in the eye because they are every every local radio station is being cut heavily particularly the bbc where every every commercial business is sort of looking to focus more locally the bbc is not so that was heartwarming and i i I think justine's point greg greg james winning is still this huge a, a huge deal for radio one at a time when it it I thought that this breakfast show was going to vanish without a trace. On the local radio point, actually, Steve, where do you think
0: we are a year on from the changes that they made because of the pandemic? You know, they changed the schedule, they made shows longer, they took shows out. Yeah, they were supplying local audiences with pandemic news, which was really important. But it's hard to imagine that people don't feel generally the stations are worse than they were a year ago when they had more things happening on them. It appears like all those things are here to stay, though.
3: Well, it does, and... I, I mean, I actually feel those were changes they probably needed needed to do because, um, you know, a lot of BBC local radio hasn't innovated for, a, for a sort of a, a long time. Also, when you look at the size of audiences that some of those stations get, it can be very hard to justify really the spend. I mean, there is obviously a public service element to ensuring local service, you know, local areas are served by the BBC. And I completely understand that, particularly uh, once you get outside of London. Um, But some of those stations do not have very significant audiences.
0: Also announced on Friday were the British Podcast Award nominations. Uh, Anything of interest there, Steve? You got one at least, I think. So congratulations, the crown, I noticed. Uh, Two, Uh,
3: two, two. Uh, the crown and how do we get here? Yeah, uh, um, what's what would I find interesting? I I think there's a few a few uh, things that stuck out for me. I mean, first of all, the sort of breadth of shows, um, which is which is fantastic. Um, you know, I know that the entries are up by fifty percent, so again, that's really really impressive and obviously completely indicative of where the market is going. It's the what
0: people want to win now, isn't it? I mean, that's interesting. You know, from year one where it was a bit of fun, <laughs> it feels like quite a lot of competition.
3: Ab- absolutely. You know, I think the British Podcast Awards gets reported on more in the mainstream press now than the Arias do. Um, You know, I think you see a lot of pickup around the British Podcast Awards. And throughout the year, you see mentions for shows that, you know, it was the British Podcast Award winner, that sort of thing. And Global R in
0: it. That's the difference, isn't it? Global
3: R in it. I mean, you know, in the podcast space, they are just one of many. And that's the exciting thing. You know, they're they're not actually a particularly significant player in podcasting. um, And they're up against lots of other... um, lots of other shows and producers I think the other thing that sort of stands out for me is uh, in a lot of the categories now you see um, really well made high-end productions Um, you know UK podcast production is reaching a really good moment now and I think you can also see that in the best network award where you've got some really fantastic British companies nominated, you know, uh, Fun Kids, Plosive Productions, Stackenov. these are really good production companies making great podcasts. And so it's wonderful to see them going up against sort of bigger players like like the BBC or, or The Economist or The Athletic, which is being rumoured to be bought by uh, The New York Times. So, um, so, you know, look, this is this is a wonderful event. And, and, and hats off to the organisers, because I just think this has really become a key part of the podcast landscape in the UK.
0: Except if you look through the list of nominees, Alex, um, I mean, it seems very striking to me, and this is absolutely sort of what British podcasting excels at, so it's not a surprise, but it's to do with budget. You know, it seems obvious to me that the things we're good at are shows where two or three people have a chat in an amusing way, or, you know, have a chat about a surprising subject. But is there much in this list that competes with the kind of podcast people love from the States?
2: You think Corrupt FM does that? I think the... and. But with that, the US market is a lot more mature when it comes to podcasting than the UK is. And as we all know, like US budgets and UK budgets were never really comparable unless you can sell it overseas. And I don't think there are that many UK podcasts that have that international crossover in a way that the US, like uh, the Rogan podcast and a few others, ha- are as as big overseas as they are in the UK. And maybe like the you know the Football Weekly podcast has fifty percent UK audience, fifty percent overseas audience. And there still isn't the revenues behind podcasting that that will get you the sort of in-depth journalistic version or the sort of high spec, the, the next level of podcasting.
0: I mean, it's big name talent, isn't it? Like included in the nominees this year, you've got French and Saunders, Alan Partridge, Louis Theroux. I mean, you know, these are names people have heard of, but they're doing the kind of shows that you record remotely over Zoom and don't cost a lot of money. That's not what's happening in the States.
3: I've got to take issue with you, Ollie. I mean, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of shows nominated here, and it's easy to pick on the shows that have got big-name talent or that are studio-based shows. But equally, you've got shows like Hunting Ghislaine or... Um, Transmissions, the definitive story of Joy, Joy Division. You know, these are these are well-made shows. I mean, Hunting glane is, you know, has done exactly that model of of selling the selling the TV rights. You know, it's, it's going to become a become a documentary-style show. show. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, and you know, I could list many, many others. You know, where where is George Gibney or you, you know? And then even with the studio shows, I think you've got a really good quality shows like um, How Do You Cope with ellison John? You know, these are not just a couple of comedians larking about. This is a show that has a purpose, and that is very much in the best traditions of some of the best studio-based shows we hear coming out of the States.
0: Okay, let's talk about advertising. And last year's ad crunch has now been confirmed as terrible. Uh, According to figures released by the Advertising Association last week, it shrunk by 7% overall in 2020, but it wasn't equal. National news brands down 24%, regional news brands down 35%, magazines down 29%, those are all pretty scary percentages, aren't they? Uh, radio and TV comparative, not so bad, 126 and 11.8% by comparison. But they are terrible figures for regional news, Alex. Let's start with that, because they were already in dire straits before COVID.
2: I think that's true. And also, if you think about regional news, and it, it's a little bit more analogue than it is digital, and if you look at digital revenues, every national news brand has an entire team dedicated to maximising CPMs and RPMs and every other acronym you would wish to mention. And it, that, albeit that Google and Facebook own a large part of that market, the optimization and the coding that goes into making sure that functions correctly with user experience, with user journeys, the, the amount of nerdy phrases that I know now with working a load of code stuff at the minute means the technical detail and getting getting that revenue from google from facebook from wherever it is an art form and if you don't have those people which you are less likely to have in regional news brands means that you're not going to hit optimum cpms rpms and it means you're not going to have those new forms of revenues so whether that be sponsored content partnered content or affiliate content coming in and for me even that that's a pivot and it's a quick It's a very steep learning curve for me, even working as I do. So if if you're a regional news brand who hasn't had to deal with that before, which the pandemic just brought into you, you're not going to be able to innovate quickly enough to to cope with the national news brands.
0: Except so many of them are consolidated now, you know, owned by Archant, for example. There should be clever people there that know how to work with the algorithms, shouldn't there? Is it just that the stories only appeal to... Such a relatively small number of people, you know, the thousand people who click on the story about the football match at the local school are really interested in it, but no one
2: else in the world is. It, it, this might, and I don't know, might come down to GDPR regulations. So if Archon had created a, a really thorough data policy where you can track people across those environments ethically and legally, then then you can up CPMs because you can share that data with Google and you can tailor those ads more exactly. Um, I, it's from the data that I was looking at, from from the, from the those advertising, figures. it's not the traffic is down. It's just that the revenue associated with them it is so far hit, and because people are turning to different places, and pe- the local newscape needs to look to subscribers, as as does as do most journalism places. And if you, it's it's not the traffic is down; it's that the revenue that traffic is traffic commands is shrinking by the week. And Steve, I guess radio
0: seems the obvious one to ask you about. Down twelve point six percent to six hundred and fourteen million pounds. So I mean, not nothing. But, you know, commercial radio stations that rely on advertising, what's going to be the consequence of that? You know, we've already seen talent taking pay cuts, haven't we? We've already seen schedules being stripped out. What else?
3: Well, I think you just said it. I, I, I mean, eventually you have to start looking at, at the cost base um, because there's not much more consolidation that can go on in, in the industry. It's not a surprise because obviously you've got a dual attack going on, which is music streaming on on the one side and and the very aggressive growth of podcast listening on the other. And uh, so, share of ear for radio stations is really, um, you know, is really under attack.
0: But also, this moment where people weren't going to McDonald's and Tesco and you know flying with Flybe because they couldn't. So, I mean, some of the advertisers will come back.
3: Well, some of them may come back, but I think I think is isn't the lesson there from newspapers, which is ultimately if the advertisers go and they find other places to advertise and those are more those are more uh, effective or, or impactful. And generally, that does seem to be related around online activities, whether you're, whether you're advertising in Spotify or you're advertising on a podcast. Um you know, I'm not, I'm not sure you are going to come, come, come back. You know, the, the, the sort of data and information uh, that you can get around who you're reaching by going to those sorts of places, as opposed to a radio station where you're relying on radar information, uh, is just incomparable.
0: What do you make of the wireless model at the moment then of sponsoring shows and sponsoring channels uh, that we're seeing at The Times and The Chris Evans Breakfast Show and Graham Norton and all of that? Because that does seem to be a version of something you could do instead.
3: Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, well done to them because they've looked to innovate. You know, genuinely, I have no idea commercially whether that works for them or or not. They're paying for some, you know, some really big talent there. And obviously with Times Radio and with Virgin, you know, there there were big names involved there. Um, But equally, News UK have deep pockets and can afford to invest and and, and hopefully play a, a slightly longer game. So, you know, I don't know whether it whether it necessarily works, but I think I think commercial radio in many ways has needed innovation on lots of fronts and certainly News UK are a company who I think are doing that.
0: Uh, Alex, you're obviously perfectly at home talking about Google algorithms. I like it when we put you into an uncomfortable place and make you look at the US upfronts. Did anything catch your eye from the uh, programmes the US networks are showcasing around for their new and returning series this week?
2: I think the the diversity thing so the the idea that that is now financially viable i think is is really really interesting so the idea of uh, that you can actually expand putting stories of people of color on screen and not having to sort of play to a white audience i think is a beautiful wonderful thing and this thing called aspirational content which is once again, new phrase. Hadn't heard that before. So the idea that we're we're creating this sort of aspirate—it's almost like keeping up with the Kardashians, but in a, in a scripted story, right? So it's you are selling the dream of these lives rather than actual real life, which, as a person who lives and dies by documentaries, surprised me a little bit. So the you know, the the um, escapist aspirational fair personified with literal blue skies. Is, is one
1: of the uh,
0: first releases. It's interesting. I'm glad I asked you because, I mean, Steve Alex has picked out a couple of relatively innovative things there, but you could also look at the list of things being touted around. There's a, a remake of Ghosts, the BBC comedy. There's a new version of The Wonder Years. You could say there's a bit of an inclination towards comfort food TV here, safe hits.
3: Well, but even with The Wonder Years, I mean, how, you know, uh, 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 yeah, it's a reinvention. Um, it, it's a reinvention with an all-black family. Um, so that's really interesting. And, and frankly, you kind of want to see the same sort of attitude and innovation coming from British TV. And, and it still seems to be, you know,
0: With regard to to minorities in particular, yeah. Well,
3: with, you know, yes, with minorities and diversity, but also with, with wider innovation. Uh, it often seems to me that, um, you know, a lot of that does seem to come, you know, particularly scripted stuff seems to come from the States.
0: (laughs) Let's look at Australia, where the Australian network ABC has done a deal with Google and Facebook to use their content, funneling millions into supporting their journalism. I suppose I'm sorry to sort of ask it, you know, from the point of view, what does this mean for us? But Alex, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for the way things might go in the UK? You were saying last time you were on that Australia is quite a safe place for the likes of Google and Facebook to push the envelope because it doesn't really matter
2: in the grand scheme of things to them. I don't think it means that much for the UK and the US. I, I think this this freedom of the press thing that the UK and, and, and the US is, so the, you know the, that idea has lost all meaning and, but if you are going to start invoicing news sites for host like invoicing Google for hosting their content, Google is more likely when it's going to start costing them real revenue to just pull the plug and see what happens. Like Google and Facebook are most likely to start playing chicken with news providers. And in the UK and in the US specifically, because whereas Australia provides, I think it's I think Australia is the 20th biggest country when it comes to Google and Facebook traffic. But you get back to that question of whether or not publishers need Google and Facebook more than Facebook and Google need publishers. I think the... Google and Facebook are not the same entity, so I think the actual decisions made by Facebook and Google could be very different. So, whereas, I, to the extent to which publishers gain traffic from Google is very different from the percentage of traffic they gain from Facebook, which wasn't the case five years ago. How much power Google has and how much Facebook has, I'm being very careful to sort of very not sort of give away any trade secrets. It how. If you look at the Facebook News Initiative that just launched in the UK, that's Facebook trying to get on good terms with publishers and pay them for their content. Mm. If you look at the way that Google News Initiative and Google AMP, which is a sort of a, a form of article that they've they've put as for open source software so smaller publishers can build their website through AMP um, to make their site quicker and more friendly to Google, that deal by itself does not have any impact in the UK US and it would take a snowball in effect so if, if another if three or four countries started following it could have a huge impact but the, the biggest player here is the US and I can't see the US moving and in, in that case the, the UK is, is going to be bundled along with any changes in the United States.
0: Yeah, unless there's real political pressure, Steve. I mean, I mean, obviously, these are the, the richest companies in human history, so they could afford it. It seems a bit weird to say, could they afford it? But I mean, it's obviously a hit to their bottom line. They're, they're not probably going to be willing to afford it in every country of the world,
2: are they?
3: Well, I think, uh, I think it goes more back to the middle point of your sentence. They're, they're the richest companies in the world, and that gives them a lot of sway uh, in terms of what they do or don't need to uh, agree to. Uh, you know, I haven't got a wider perspective than that because I bow to the journalistic wisdom of Alex, who's sort of immersed in this world and sort of, you know, but, you know. and I hear what Alex is saying to Australia. 20th biggest market, I think I think you said, Alex, you know, can you really see this applying in, in, in the US? You know, don't think so.
0: Let's talk about um, something that is very firmly in your wheelhouse, Steve. Apple subscriptions for podcasts, they have landed now. And not only that, there's an affiliate deal as well. What does that mean for publications and are you going to use it as something else?
3: Well, what the affiliate deal means is that you can um, you can recommend someone on, you know, you can pass a listener on for a subscription and benefit as the as the as the program or, you you know, the company who has passed that person on. You get part of that part of that payment. So you're encouraging um, you know, you're advertising, promoting, and pushing um, Apple subscriptions and incentivized to sort of do so, which is obviously a really sensible move to do, especially with a new product that's being launched.
0: Because there's going to be all these rival things, we still quite haven't worked out as podcasters. Are we telling people subscribe and then you do it across platforms, maybe Spotify, maybe Patreon as well? Or do you say specifically, go to Apple Podcasts because that's where you're getting your affiliate fee?
3: Well, look, look, the, uh, you know, I think the biggest thing about Apple um, subscriptions is obviously the scale um you know patreon's great and has got a great business model and obviously is a business that's now being really valued spotify obviously very very important but you can't get away from the from the amount of devices that have apple podcasts on them and therefore the ability uh to reach uh, new podcast listeners as well as existing ones and obviously convert a small percentage of those into subscribers because i think probably that's that's like any subscription or any freemium model that's what it's going to be there's there's going to be a small number of people willing to pay to get an ad free show or a show with extra content or some other uh benefit um you know i i you know i i actually um i think what apple have done is is really smart
0: but are you going to use it
3: Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, what am I going to use it as an individual or as a company? No, as
0: a company. No, no, well, both, but as a
1: company. Uh,
3: we are absolutely uh, getting behind it, and you know, trialling a number of different shows on it, and and a number of different ways of doing that. We, you know, we have we've grouped some shows together that will form a channel. Uh, we're doing other shows as individual shows that you can. Um, sup, sup, subscribe to, and we're really keen to uh, to sort of play around with it, and obviously just see what sorts of uh, metrics we get back, you know, what sorts of what, what amounts of users we get back, so we can get some learnings going.
0: And is is the messaging really clear to listeners, though? Because that's the thing, there's a lot to take on board, isn't there? If you're just a passive someone who just downloads the show to your phone, you can't even remember how it got there, you know, someone then saying specifically, go and do this thing, or are you just letting the Apple podcast users just see the big button and press it?
3: Well, it's, uh, you know, I I'm not sure it's the right question to ask because it's not necessarily about a day one impact, right? You know, you're talking about, um, you're talking about a business that has really aggressive audience growth. I mean, super, super aggressive. And interestingly, certainly in the UK, we're not at peak penetration yet. You you know, we're not above 50% yet of people who every week are listening to podcasts. We've got a long way to go still. And so you're trying to affect a behavior change and a culture change. And therefore, that's not a day one thing. That's about that. That's a long term thing about how you start to impact on the behavior of podcast listening.
0: I wonder, Alex, whether like uh, Patreon and Moonclerk and those kind of companies have actually got the hipster bit covered though like there's something more corporate isn't there about doing it via apple podcasts which might put some podcast listeners who feel like they're in an elite club supporting something indie might put them off
2: people will go wherever their favorite podcasts are so it's not really about if if they're on if they happen to be on apple i'll give apple money if they're on spotify they'll give spotify money if they're an independent and so they're on patreon or or wherever else that's where they'll go to give money i think people are more like if you look at the impact that joe rogan had on spotify and, and how many people flocked over to that network like every all people I'm speaking to in in who are experts in this industry is uh, Apple needs more vertical content. Apple needs more exclusive content because uh, we're in that Netflix moment of where podcasts go. It it I don't I think to your point I don't believe that the hipster market has been has has been cornered by the, those things. But also the hipster market the ones who already are paying for podcasts and so it's all of this emerging market of the of the older audiences or the or the less less avant-garde oh podcast avant-garde that's nonsense but the, the less the, the less new technology familiar that, are, that they, these companies are really vying for and it's other people with an iphone who, who maybe use one social media app who might might be the, the new audiences that are looking for well the most avant-garde
0: thing we do on the media podcast is of course the media quiz the highlight of every edition of the show and we have reached that moment uh this week it is entitled second thoughts uh, in this role play, I will be James Bolan. You are all Linda Bellingham. I will try and weasel my way out of a number of established trends in the media. All you have to do is work out what the new situation is, with hilarious consequences. you buzzing with your name when you know the answer, so Alex, you will say... Alex. And Steve, you will say... Steve. All clear? I mean, I've literally never seen Second Thoughts. I'm just reading a script. It's best of three, so let's play... Well, you see, darling, I know you liked the old name, but I thought this had a bit more exclamation. No, I'm not having a midlife crisis. What story am I parodying through the medium of James Buzz Buzzing with your Uh, name when you know the answer, Steve, Steve. It's
3: it's the name change for Sony Movies.
0: Correct. Sony Movie Channel has changed its name to Great. Here is story number two. But what is it? Here's my excuse. Of course I still love you. I just happen to think that 10.45 was a bit too late to start having a serious conversation. Alex. Alex.
2: Newsnight is moving back, no, into in, such fanfare, It is moving back from 10.45 to 10.30pm.
0: Um, OK, here is uh, story number three. It's the tiebreak. Terribly exciting. Look, Linda, I like camping, I really do, but all the kids do these days is sit in front of their screens endlessly trying to log into a stream. Let's just watch Eurovision. What's the story we're parodying excellently? Buz in with your name when you know the answer.
2: Oh, Alex. Alex. Is this about Glastonbury trying to stream a festival and not being able to stream a festival because apparently nothing can ever work correctly? Um, and so that a lot of media types have been saying about how difficult it is to stream things.
0: Yes, it is exactly that story. Um, and I did hilariously hear it being discussed on Five Live at the weekend and their streams all failed whilst they were trying to discuss how appalling it was that Glastonbury had <laughs> failed on theirs. Um, <laughs> did your heart go out to them, Steve? You were saying you had sympathy for the production companies behind the award ceremonies.
3: Oh, very much so. I mean, come on. Uh, past fifty months have been terrible. Losing all our music festivals has been terrible. Glastonbury is the greatest music festival of all time. They've tried to do something... Uh, to sort of, you know, uh, to sort of replace, you know, we, not that you can replace it, but you know what I mean. To just have something there, uh, it's clearly been very popular in terms of the amount of people who wanted to, uh, to sort of watch it and 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 pay for a ticket for it. Um, so yeah, huge, huge sympathy. I mean, you know, I've got massive affection for Glastonbury, so I just want everything to work for Glastonbury, and I really hope they're back, they're back next next year in 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 top uh, in top style.
0: Well, I will see you at Worthy Film next year, Steve, but I'm afraid you have lost. Uh, Alex is the winner with that triumphant second answer. Congratulations, Alex.
2: Thank you very much. (laughs)
0: <laughs> he's so humble uh, that is it for our show for today my thanks to winner Alex Hudson and Steve Ackerman the media podcast is totally independent which is why we went down the 90s sitcom route for our quiz we are beholden to no one but you uh, so if you can afford to support us then head to themediapodcast.com donate uh, and of course do follow us to hear new episodes when they drop on your podcast app of choice you can subscribe for free for now at podfollow.com slash themediapodcast uh, I've been Ollie Mann the producer. Matt Hill and Peter Price. It was a Rethink Audio and PPM production. And we'll see you in a fortnight.
1: Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable.